The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Good morning. Uh, I'd like you to turn to uh, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, verse 23 of chapter 1, down through the first 11 verses of, of chapter 2. So if you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and... Uh, Follow along with me from verse 23, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. Paul says, But I call God as witness to my soul, and to spare you, it, I did not come again to Corinth, as he had said that he was going to, but he decided that he would not make that trip then because of what had taken place. And he says, Not that we lord it over your faith. This is some of the best news I ever heard. I remember the first time I ran into this passage. This is a good word for pastors, for apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. That is that we are not to lord it over the faith of those to whom we have been placed to give leadership, but we are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. Paul was being accused of being a dictator, heavy-handed, and fickle at the same time. And so he wanted to know, I understand, I'm not here to lord it over your faith. I am my co-worker with you for your joy. And our joy comes through our walk with Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're most, most interested in. And then he begins chapter 2 this way, But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful. This is how husbands feel about their wives. I certainly don't want to make my wife unhappy because she's the one who makes me happy. Amen? Amen, the wife said. It's true. This is the very thing I wrote you so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of all of you. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, because he had to confront them over sin in the church. Not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me. And what he's talking about here, so you understand it, is he's talking about the man that they had a hard time disciplining because he stood against Paul. He was a critic of Paul. He was very slanderous towards Paul and basically had been convinced that Paul was a dictator. And so he says, uh, if anybody's caused me sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to, sorrow not to me, but in, in some degree, in order not to say too much. He says, sure, it hurt a little bit, but I was more concerned about you as the people of God for all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Here is the goal of church discipline, by the way, that you should forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to affirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, 
what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. What we have here is a comparison between gospel forgiveness and the warning about the schemes of Satan. The particular issue that's going on here is that Paul, if you remember, Paul was the one who started the church. He planted the church in Corinth. This is how churches were planted in the first century. He went to Corinth and preached the gospel. People got saved, and therefore a church began to exist. These believers who had come to faith in Christ. And so it was Paul who first went there with the gospel. And if you remember, he faced some real challenges. In fact, Jesus appeared to him in, in a vision at night to tell him, don't be afraid, stay here, because he was getting so much opposition. For I have many people in this city. So Jesus promised to be with him and to protect him. And Paul stayed there, preached the gospel, the church was formed. And then what's happened in this case, as he writes 2 Corinthians, he wrote, what happened was that the Corinthians, after a short while, when they first came to faith in Christ, they began to exist as a community of faith, and they had all kinds of questions. So they wrote Paul a letter, and they had all kinds of questions in this letter. Paul writes 1 Corinthians to answer those questions. And if you notice, as you read 1 Corinthians, he keeps saying, now concerning this, that is what you asked about, and he gives them a response and an answer. And then after 1 Corinthians was written, an issue came up while he was at Ephesus. Uh, there was a, 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 something going on in the church that he felt he needed to go and deal with. Now, Paul was hounded by a group of people that followed him around as he did the work of the gospel and accused him of all kinds of things because they were Judaizers. They believed that people who professed faith in Christ, these Gentiles, needed to come under the law. And they needed to assure themselves of real salvation, real sanctification by living under the Mosaic law. And they, they criticized the Apostle Paul for teaching what we just sang. And can it be? that you're saved today because of the work of Jesus Christ and faith in him and not because of your works. And so Paul went there to deal with this. And what followed after that was that a very small group that were very pro-Paul got really angry with another small group who were convinced that Paul was a dictator. And so word came back to Paul. He writes him a short letter it was an angry letter, and he wasn't angry because there was somebody standing against him. He was angry that they were being distracted from the gospel by this kind of foolishness. The Apostle Paul is not an egomaniac. Uh, he, he has had all kinds of people hate him. That doesn't bother him. What bothers him is when it affects the, the gospel and its work among God's people. And so he wrote this angry letter. And he confronted them. And so the response was that they dealt with this issue. And this man, who obviously had some kind of prominence in the church, who was speaking out against Paul and undermining his ministry to them, was confronted, and the majority disciplined him in some way. Perhaps they took away some of his uh, position of leadership, or whatever happened. We don't know all the details. 
And then word gets back to him that they have dealt with this issue. This man has repented, and now they've got another problem. The second problem is now that he's repented, they're having a hard time forgiving him. You ever have that problem? When somebody sinned against you, and they come to you and and confess their sin, and you, you forgive them, but then you have a hard time really forgiving them? From now on, they're marked for life. You can never embrace them and pull them back in and love them as a brother or sister in Christ. That's what was going on in this church. And so Paul is writing now and encouraging them because they've done the right thing, and now he's encouraging them now, forgive the man and embrace him. The goal of church discipline is to get people to turn away from that which is pulling them away from God Turn back to Christ and be restored and forgiven and embraced. A lot of times we hear about church discipline. I had somebody ask me, how many of these church discipline situations have you seen that actually produced forgiveness? And I have seen many like that. But sometimes we hear all about church discipline, but we never hear about the reconciliation that takes place. Because that's what pictures the gospel. One of the things that I think this passage points out to us so clearly to me is that the church of Jesus Christ, this little local church, is a witness of the gospel. If our lives and the way we treat each other puts a lie to the gospel, then we have a huge problem. You're really quiet. You've been in churches before. Where, people, where the gospel is preached, and yet the people live in total contradiction to the gospel. And part of living the gospel is loving each other and forgiving each other. And so Paul is writing to correct this. There's a simple outline of this passage, verses 5 through 8, or 5 through 11, rather, and that's where we're going to camp is in, in verses 5 through 11. Uh, in, the first, in verses 5 through 8, he talks about the limits of discipline. He actually uh, speaks to this very clearly here in verses 5 through 8. He says, but if any has caused sorrow, and, and, the, and the reason that he's saying this is that the sin that this man was committing was against Paul. He was slandering Paul. And so Paul says, but if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me. I'm not fretting over this, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, it's not like I'm steel-skinned, but what he's saying is, my concern is for you as the people of God and for the unity in the body of Christ and for the witness of this local church. He says, sufficient for for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Now, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he tells them how to discipline a man who is living in open disobedience to God, ongoing, Church discipline is not for picking people to pieces and and saying, oh, you did that, so we're going to bring you before the church. No, it's for ongoing, unrepentant, disobedient life towards Jesus Christ by someone who claims to be a follower of Christ. So if a person claims to be a follower of Christ, but they're living in continual disobedience to Christ, then we're called upon to care enough about that person to approach them and call them to repentance and faith. And so that's what Paul is talking about. 
And he says, the sorrow that matters to me is the sorrow that brings repentance. He says in verse 7, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. It's always true that the repentance, you've heard this before, that a person's repentance should be as broad as his sin. But there's something else that should be as broad as that sin and that discipline, and that is the reaffirmation of our love for the person who's been disciplined. And that's rare, but that's what we're called to do. When there's repentance and restoration, then we embrace the person. In the early church, they had a problem early on in the life of the church. Uh, When people under persecution by the Roman Empire, when people uh, denied Christ in order to save their lives, and they knew they were wrong and they repented of it, it was hard for the church to embrace them again. It was hard for them to pull them back in and see them come to real repentance and restorations because they had denied Christ publicly in order to save their own hide. Now, we've never faced that. No one here has ever faced your life being threatened for being a follower of Jesus Christ. There are people in the world that are experiencing that. But the church had to struggle with that, and and it tested their understanding of the gospel. Do we have full forgiveness through the work of Jesus Christ? Does God forgive sin when there is repentance and faith? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I've mentioned this last time. Is Of course, there are consequences to certain sins. If you rob a bank, you might have to do time in prison. But we could still embrace you as a brother or sister if you've repented and been restored. The, the second part, verses 9 through 11, the elements of restoration. I want you to notice this. So, The limits of discipline. You have the extent of the hurt that Paul describes. The reason this hurt Paul was because Paul knew that God had placed him in the lives of the Corinthians as an equipper of the saints. He knew that God had given him this role to minister to this church. And so what was really bad about this sin is this man was undermining the confidence and faith of the believers at Corinth in regards to Paul and the word of God that was coming from him. You know, Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament books. So what if you said, you know, I don't trust Paul. He's a dictator. You can't listen to him. You never know what he really means. So you just eliminate those 13 letters that we have in the New Testament. And so Paul was concerned. And so he describes the extent of the hurt. He says, I'm not concerned about how this has hurt me. I'm concerned how it hurts you. Because I don't want you to be confused and drawn away from the truths of the gospel that I've shared with you. And then the dimensions of the discipline in verse 6 came about by the majority. This is what he told them back in 1 Corinthians 5, that when the whole church is gathered together, it's a responsibility of the whole body of Christ. When somebody within a local church begins to live in open disobedience to Christ and continues to claim to be a follower of Christ, they have to be confronted by the whole church. In fact, Jesus gave us this instruction. And you know, meek and lowly Jesus, you know the Jesus that died for your sins. Jesus said in Matthew 18 that if a believer's sins were to go to him and reprove him and seek to get him to repent and be restored, 
If he doesn't listen to you, then take two or three with you and go back and confront him a second time. And we're supposed to repeat this process, trying to get there to be repentance. And finally, if he refuses to listen to the whole church, then he's put out of the fellowship of the believers. And in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, this was such a serious sin. The sin in 1 Corinthians 5 was so serious that it was incredibly hurting the the testimony of the local church at Corinth. They had a member in the church who was living with one of his father's wives. And he says, you are to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Perhaps he was talking about a sin unto death. We don't know for sure. In this case, Paul says, I have forgiven the man because he's repented. And I fully forgive him. And so you don't have to continue this kind of punishment in order to honor me. And then the, the, the sign of the repentance in verse 7, listen to this. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one may be overwhelmed by the excessive sorrow. Sorrow is what we feel that leads to repentance. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Godly sorrow is when the Spirit of God works in my heart and convicts me of how I've sinned against you. And what that does, it motivates me to come and repent. And so he says, I don't want him to be overcome with sorrow. I want him to be relieved of this sorrow by the repentance and restoration. And then fourth, the appropriate response in verse 8 is that they, sh- they are to reaffirm your love for him. I love this because this is radical gospel. That we're supposed to love people to the extent that when they wrong us and they confess and repent, we embrace them again. We don't remember their sin against them anymore. You remember what God did with your sins when you came to faith, what the Old Testament said? Where did he put it? Behind his back. Literally, you can ask Ryan this, uh, literally it basically says between his shoulder blades. Now, you, if you have two mirrors, you can see between your shoulder blades, but <clears throat> you can't without a mirror. It's hidden. And the point is, is that God doesn't see your sin against you any longer. Isn't that wonderful? That's glorious truth. That he literally removes that from the picture. That isn't hanging over your head any longer. Sometimes when we have things go on in our lives and we go through something that we know that the people of God don't approve of, and uh, you can't undo it, it's done, and then there's forgiveness and restoration. But sometimes people just brand a person, and they can never receive them as one of their own. And so Paul confronts this. Then the second part of this, in verses 9 through 11, these are the elements of restoration. This is what we have to remember when we seek to restore someone. First of all, a faithful confrontation. It's faithful to confront a fellow believer over ongoing sin in his life. For to this end also I wrote so that I might be put, put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. In other words, he's confronting them over this. He wants them to be obedient in all things by restoring this man. He's confronting them about the need to restore this brother who's been, who has been repentant. And now he needs to be restored. And then... Uh, ready forgiveness. I love that expression, ready forgiveness. But who, one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. Quite literally, I've already forgiven him. For indeed, 
what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Forgiven, he says, I forgave him in the presence of Christ. Now, you're all aware the New Testament instructs us that one of the characteristics of the local church is we have to be a forgiving people. First Peter chapter 4 says, because we live at this particular time in history, Christ has come, the Spirit's been poured out, and now we're living in this, these last days between the two comings of Christ. And he says, this is how we ought to live. We ought to be sober and alert for the purpose of prayer. But secondly, we ought to love one another fervently from the heart because, what? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, that expression doesn't mean love sweeps sin under the rug. It means love can forgive. See, if you love somebody, you're seeking to restore them. A parent who has a child who is disobedient and rebellious, they want to see them repent so that they can restore them and restore the relationship because they love them. And so Peter says, we have to be red hot in our love for each other because love covers a multitude of sins. And you're going to have a multitude of sins going on in the life of the church in these days. If you understand what the New Testament calls sins. It isn't just the big five. It's, it's those sins that I commit in disobedience to Christ. For example, I am called to put you before myself. When you have a need, I'm to be more concerned about your need than my own need. I, I have been commanded not to be selfish, and you've been commanded not to be selfish. And so I have to live in obedience to those things, and when I don't, I need someone to confront me. There's, there's two words. Uh, well, in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says um, <clears throat> that we should, we should reprove the unruly. Uh, we should encourage the small-souled and we should be patient with everybody. We should be patient with everybody. Now, reproving the unruly in the context of First and Second Thessalonians are, are those who are living in disobedience to Christ's clear command that we ought to work with our hands so we can provide for our own and also to help others. And these guys were living in an unruly way. They refused to work, and they just mooched off of other, other Christians in the church. So it says, you reprove those. The word reprove means to confront somebody to the face and to say to them, I want to make this clear. What you are doing is wrong. It is a violation of Christ's clear command. That's reproof. Encouragement is when you come alongside of somebody who's discouraged and ready to give up. That's encouragement. The first word means to confront somebody face-to-face. The second word means to come alongside of somebody and walk along with them and encourage them to keep going in their following Christ. And then the third thing he says is be long-suffering with everybody, patient with all. Why do you think he said that? Because you're going to have to be patient with all. There's not one person that makes up this body of this particular local church that doesn't need people to manifest patience towards them. Right, Judy? I'm six foot tall, Judy's five foot tall, so I have to look at all the stuff that's up above her head that she can't see, like uh, what's on top of the refrigerator. Well, I was telling her that these little globes on our bathroom uh, light over the mirror needed to be cleaned, and so I took them apart, but the problem is I dropped one of them and it just broke into 100 pieces. And so now... we. We don't have any of those little globes over the light, so it's just the bare lights. 
So when I look in the mirror, you know what I see? I see all my wrinkles and crevices of my face. And it's like I've aged 10 years. There's no soft light. Um, but we need to be patient with each other. So we need to confront the unruly, encourage the small-souled, or the, the faint-hearted, it's translated, and be patient with all. You know what the problem is? Sometimes people can't figure out if a person's unruly or faint-hearted. And so what they end up doing is they end up encouraging the unruly. A person's living in open rebellion against Christ, and they encourage them. Let me walk with you for a while. That's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to confront them and tell them the truth. But the faint-hearted, the person who's having a struggle going down the path, we're supposed to come alongside of them and encourage them. And it does take a little bit of growth in the Word of God to tell the difference between the two. Because some people are rebellious, they're so sweet. There's an expression in Scripture that says we should be sweetly reasonable with each other. And it, it amazes me how uh, we can be in rebellion against the Word of God and be so sweetly reasonable, apparently. We appear to be sweetly reasonable. But in fact, somebody needs to confront us to the face and say what you're doing is in total contradiction to what you believe. Now, this verse 11, spiritual awareness, this is what I want to kind of camp on a few minutes. He says, do this so that no advantage will be taken by Satan. No advantage will be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. We are not ignorant of the schemes of Satan. I'm afraid some of us are ignorant of it. And so I want to show you what they are. Here's Satan's methods. Three key words that are used to describe how Satan attacks God's people. The first word is the word that's used here, thoughts. It's translated schemes. It's translated evil schemes in the New Living Translation and, and schemes in the New American Standard. But the word itself is naemata, which means thoughts. We are not ignorant of his thoughts. You see, what did, what did Satan do to Eve? He filled her mind with a lie about God, and she was deceived. In Acts chapter 5, you have a situation, or Acts chapter 4, you have a situation where Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit. And Peter says to them, Satan has filled your heart. He has controlled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Satan comes against us with thoughts, a way of thinking, a way, a way of interpreting things that is in total contradiction to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, what I, I, I mentioned before is that we, as a local church, are a testimony to the gospel. We bear witness to the gospel by our lives. The gospel says that you can find forgiveness in Christ Jesus. We are to testify to that in the way that we forgive each other. We are a fellowship of the forgiven and the forgiving. And when we don't, when we are not, then we are not bearing witness to the gospel the way that Christ wants us to. <clears throat> so when... when um, when Paul says we're not ignorant of his thoughts, what he's saying is we know the kind of thinking that Satan is trying to promote in the hearts of Christ's people. 
He wants you to believe things that are totally contradictory to the gospel. Sometimes uh, it's easy to begin to think that certain people deserve forgiveness and certain people don't deserve forgiveness. No, that's not true. None of us deserve forgiveness. We've been given it as a gift. He's forgiven us as a gift. Simply by faith, believing in Christ. And so this is a place where we should see, within the people of God, the manifestation of gospel forgiveness. That we know how to forgive each other. Now, sometimes the reason we don't experience forgiveness is we never tell each other the truth. If I never tell you the truth about what's really apparent, have you ever noticed this, that sometimes people in any kind of social group you're in, there'd be certain people that everybody talks about behind their back how they're, they're just so irritating. They drive you up the wall. But no, nobody ever talks to the person. Imagine what would happen if a person like that had 10 people on occasion just say to him, Brother, I don't know if you're aware of it, but you really have an offensive way of relating to people. And I don't want to see you continue in that because it really destroys relationships. Can you imagine saying that to somebody? If you'd like to practice, you can meet with me and tell me. No, I'm serious. If it's, if it's like you can't even imagine telling somebody the truth, I've had it with you. Because the last 10 times I, I've talked to you, you have insulted everybody I know. Sometimes people need to hear that if they're that way. I don't know anybody that way, but I hear there are people like that around. I don't think they're in this church, but all those other churches out there. <laughs> now, what this word reveals about Satan is that Satan, this is, reveals Satan's form of temptation, concepts or thoughts. He implants a way of thinking in your mind. Sometimes it's mystifying to us why we get to thinking in a way that's in total contradiction to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's exactly what he wants to do. He wants to literally suck the life out of the gospel in your life. He wants you to be somebody who professes Christ but doesn't live a life that testifies to the reality of the gospel. And then the next word that's used is a word that describes Satan's approach when he comes against you, when he attacks you. And it's the word methods. It isn't translated that way, but it's the word methodios, from which we get our word method. But it has the idea of deceiving, deceitful scheming. It's translated in some translations. When Satan comes against you, you're not going to know that Satan's attacking you unless you are really alert and sober. Every time Satan's attacks are talked about in the New Testament, it admonishes us to be alert and sober-minded. Don't be fuzzy in your thinking. Be clear-minded. Speak the truth to your own heart. Preach the gospel to your heart. Why in the world should I love this person? Well, because he was bought with the same price I was. Because he has Christ living in him. Ephesians 4.30. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed until the day of redemption. Now, the context is this. It's when Christians use words to slander one another as weapons against one another, that we use words to hurt people. 
He says, when we do that to one another, we're grieving the Holy Spirit because he has sealed us into the day of redemption. You know, you may not like the people that God has put you among sometimes, but that's his work. He's the one who forms the body of Christ, and he places where he chooses. And sometimes, uh, I've tried to tell my wife this, the reason that God put me in her life was to, as an instrument in his hands to refine her, you know, because she has to put up with me, and she has to love me. And God puts people in your life like that. And so we're, we're to stop grieving the Holy Spirit. In, in the New Living Translation, in Ephesians uh, 6, 11, it says, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. All the strategies of the devil. If you think that you're never under satanic attack, you're dreaming. If you're a follower of Jesus, Satan wants to attack you and undermine your faith and your confidence in Christ. He wants to destroy your testimony and your effectiveness for Christ. And he is... He has methods of coming to you when you don't even realize it. Sometimes you think it's an angel speaking to you or God himself who's speaking to you, and you don't even recognize this as the voice of the devil. I'm not saying you're hearing voices. I'm saying that his methods in coming against you is really sneaky, and you don't recognize them as they really are. The third word that's used is the word which speaks of his goal. His goal is to ensnare you. That's like a trap. You know, you trap an animal in a snare, this Greek word pagidas is talking about the kind of trap that someone would set for a little varmint. He wants to trap you and to hold you captive to do his will. In fact, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy 2, because this is quite picturesque. 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 26. Well, I'm going to read a couple of verses there, but turn to 2 Timothy Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, and listen to this. Verse 24, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to Timothy about how he is to lead the people of God at Ephesus, where he is. And so he says to him, the Lord's bondservant, that's you, Timothy, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach. And some argue, my Greek teacher in seminary argued that this could just as easily mean um, teachable. So the, the bondservant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, teachable, patient when wronged. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Uh, it's a real common thing when you get together with pastors in these different settings. I went to a prayer breakfast not too long ago, about 30 or 40 pastors there, and when they get to talking to each other, invariably you'll hear these kind of stories that a guy is, is has somebody within his, the flock over which God has placed him who is in, always in opposition against him and he can't figure it out. Well, Paul says this is how you handle it. It's with gentleness you correct those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge acknowledgement of the truth. Now they're standing against some truth that has come through Timothy. And so he says, you've got to be patient with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. But you do have to correct, but you do it with gentleness. If perhaps, 
I wonder why Paul said that. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, because he may not. Uh, that may be, this may be a good description of what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Maybe it was a person who was always against him. And he says that God gave me this thorn in the flesh so that I wouldn't be proud and be lifted up, that I would humble myself. But get this, verse 26, and that they, they, he says in verse 25, that God may grant them repentance leading to the acknowledgement of the truth. And verse 26, they may come to their senses. It's what he always says about satanic attack. You have to be alert and sober. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. And then he describes what the snare of the devil is all about. The snare of the devil is all about having been held captive by him to do his will. We had, you know, that uh, the Campus Crusade track some years ago, the four spiritual laws. Remember the first spiritual law? Anybody remember the first spiritual law? Oh, you're kidding me. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Calvinists say, wait a minute, but here's the deal. I know this for sure. Satan has a wonderful plan for your life. He really does. He, he, he's got something he really wants to use you for in his kingdom against, against the gospel. So this is serious. And this is why Paul says, look, we're not, a, we're not ignorant of his schemes. We're not ignorant of his thoughts. We're not ignorant of his ways of approaching. And what his goal is, his goal is to get you ensnared, to stand against the truth, to stand against his people. In this case, to stand against the leader in this church, Timothy. God is warning uh, Timothy about this, how he must handle it, because he would be very tempted to want to just eliminate this person. I've heard pastors tell me this before over the years. They have people they would love for them to leave and go away. <laughs> That's not a, that is not a spirit-prompted thought. Because that's exactly how Satan wants us to feel about other believers. So Paul's describing here how the servant of the Lord is to treat a believer who is opposing or standing against the truth. He says this condition is a snare of the devil. As an ensnared believer, you are one who for some reason opposes the truth as it's revealed in the word of God. One of those truths is we're to love each other and to forgive each other to speak truth with each other. Uh, another one is to get the log out of your eye before you try to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Man, haven't you done that before? You just beat somebody to death with the log that's sticking out of your eye? <laughs> you think you see something so clear and what you're confronting them about is something that you have a huge problem with. And then this final statement, the bottom line is that Satan seeks to suck the power out of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life. This is 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In whose case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan does not want you to manifest the glory of Christ in your life. He doesn't want you to be uh, transformed by seeing the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll get to there eventually. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 
says that we are transformed by beholding the glory of Christ in his word, in the gospel. Satan doesn't want that to happen to you. He doesn't want you to be shaped by the gospel. He doesn't want you to be a powerful witness for Christ with a life of obedience to Christ and love for Christ's people. He doesn't want you to be like that. He wants you to be as quirky as all get out. He wants you to be somebody that nobody can figure out. You never know if this guy's against you or for you. That's what he wants to do with you. He wants to make you totally incompetent as a servant of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, look, we're not ignorant of this. And we have to walk soberly. We have to be sober and alert. Now, I had... um, Steve, read from Ephesians chapter 6. You can read that for yourself, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through the rest of the chapter. And notice the armor that God has given you to stand against satanic attack. And put that together with Philippians chapter 2, which says every one of us is supposed to have the same mindset that Jesus Christ did to humble ourselves, to consider others as more important than ourselves to be willing to lay down our lives. Now, that includes telling people truth they don't want to hear, by the way. It doesn't mean becoming a milk toast. It means that you love somebody so much you're willing to tell them the truth of the gospel and how it applies to this situation. This is great practice. When somebody asks you for advice, always run to the gospel and say, okay, what is the gospel, what is the gospel implication of this situation? Let's pray. In fact, I'll have you stand. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, uh, we come before you as your people. We are so aware of how much we need you. So aware of how much we need the Holy Spirit to come in power in our lives. Father, I confess to you, I am so tired of not being effective as I want you to make me in the work of the gospel. And I pray that each one of us, you would fill our hearts with a flaming desire to be effective as servants of Christ in this world. We live in a world that is such a mess, and so many people so far from God and so in need of God, and some of them are related to us. And we pray, oh God, that you would so work in our hearts that the gospel of Jesus Christ would not only come out in our words, but in our life, in our relationships, in our love for each other. We pray, oh God, you'd have mercy upon us and turn us towards you. Set us free from those things that Satan wants to ensnare us with and help us to love one another fervently from the heart and be able to forgive and to love and to work together as one team that are serving the living, glorious Christ Jesus. We pray for this. We pray that you would make us aware of your mighty presence in our lives today, that you would turn us, help us to walk obediently before you. We pray in Jesus' name. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.